Hello everyone, welcome to the Bunny Chronicles podcast. This is your host, Randy Kim. So for this episode, I broke Bun Me with Hawk Tran. I ran into Hawk a few times at a couple of Asian American events this past year, including the Habayo event that he and Jennifer Pham co-founded and organized together in the Uptown neighborhood. I recently heard both of them on a podcast episode hosted by my friends Chris Sang and Vincent True from The Eating Cast. As Hawk spoke about his experience being a part of the Chicago, Asia, and Argyle neighborhood and his take on the gentrification wave surrounding that neighborhood. This was a topic of great interest to me as the Asia and Argyle community in the Chicago Uptown neighborhood has carried important meaning to me as a Southeast Asian American and to many other Southeast Asians and other community folks connected to that neighborhood. Hawk and I spoke at great lengths about that community, the fears of gentrification, our own experiences with the Vietnamese diaspora, and the Habayo event that's been introducing young Asian American folks to the Asian Argyle neighborhood. So, I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Hi, this is Randy from the Bummy Chronicles podcast, and I am here with Hawk Tran. So, Hawk, how are you today? I am doing well. Thank you so much for having me today, Randy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming in on on your very crazy, hectic schedule. You just came back from Guatemala on vacation to celebrate your birthday, and uh, I hope that you had a great time over there. Oh, it was... Um... I haven't traveled internationally for a while, so this was, um, it was refreshing to, you know, experience another culture and engage with um, different people from different parts of the world. So, yeah, I had a great time. That's that's amazing. And um, before we begin, I was wondering if you would like to introduce yourself. Yeah, so um, I was born and raised in Chicago. Um, my parents moved out to the suburbs when we were around probably like seven or eight after a failed business venture in the restaurant business. Um, but I came back to Chicago for college and I've been involved working in Uptown since then. Even throughout my childhood living in the suburbs, I was always kind of engaged with the Vietnamese Association of Illinois because my parent, my dad was a board member. My, mm. for, my mom was a former um, employee there. Uh, but yeah, like, most of my work throughout college, uh, post-college, coming back from Vietnam after that, has been always revolved around Uptown and more specifically the Southeast Asian community within Uptown. Um, currently, I am the Diversity Outreach Manager at uh, Uptown United slash Business Partners, the Chamber for Uptown. So I work predominantly with a lot of uh, minority-owned businesses in terms of leveraging um, government funding to elevate their business to you know, kind of sustain the identity of the area. Um, in addition to that, I also host Hi by Yo with uh, my friend Jennifer Pham, who is also has a lot of history in Argyle as well. Her father was the first Vietnamese American business owner on Argyle for Mini Tung Sa Pharmacy. 
and through that we try to kind of cultivate and also to highlight a lot of you know younger generation culture um artists um on a platform that intersects you know not only entertainment and like music and art but also food um and supporting local businesses mm-hmm. that's kind of just a brief background about myself yeah, that's that sounds really amazing uh, that you've been doing this work and that your family's been having such a long connection to the Argyle neighborhood, otherwise known as Asian Argyle, Little Vietnam, New Chinatown. Uh, this uh, the Argyle Street. I was just talking with Jenny Ho um, earlier today uh, for a podcast interview, and uh, she created Lawrence and Argyle, and we got into this long history about this uh, community that's been around since uh, the beginning of the refugee resettlement back in the late 70s, early 80s. And and right. it's really great to see um, your involvement and your family's involvement with this community that also holds near and dear to my heart. Um, I remembered, I think how we met was about a few months ago, several months back. I remember I would always run into, run into you in spaces. And I know we share your share a lot of our mutual friends and I remember yeah. you would always be like sitting back in the bar smoking <laughs> a cig or you know a joy I can't remember which one it was but you were just very quiet calm might quiet. have been both <laughs> <laughs> might, might have been both but yeah I remember you, you were very quiet I'm like okay well I wonder who this dude is and I wonder if I've met him before and it wasn't until I met you do Habayo uh, for like one of the events I think it was the first Habayo event that um, that was a part of which I would like to talk about later on. And I'm like, damn, that's, that was a really dope event. This is a really unique concept, which I definitely want to uh, share with you like uh, later on in this podcast. Uh, yeah. And I remembered uh, watching or hearing the eating cast, which is run by Vincent True and Chris Sang uh, a couple of months ago. And I was listening to your interview with them along with Jennifer. And when Jennifer talked about the CVS pharmacy or her her parents uh, pharmacy on Argyle and that he was about to sell it to a CVS. I almost dropped, uh, I was cleaning up my room. I think I almost dropped a broom like almost immediately. And it just, it was a very telling moment because it made me think about what Argyle or Asian Argyle means to me and to our community and to lose this fixture uh, to this upcoming wave of gentrification that's happening. It made me really think about that. And it really made me think about that experience, right? And and yeah. hearing um, your interview about what you've known about Ar- Argyle, Uptown, and also your experience in urban planning, I wanted to talk more about that um, that experience and what that is like and what the future holds for Asia and Argyle. But uh, I'm curious about uh, your upbringing. So you grew up, I believe, in Glendale Heights. Is that correct? Which is in the Western suburbs? Yeah. yeah. So I grew up in, uh, I guess, my formative years. Um, I grew up in Glendale Heights, which is like, you know, it's it's interesting to now work in like Chicago. I mean, I've been in Chicago the last you know, 16 years of my life, plus, like, you know, my form, like, my young years. But there's always this kind of discussion about, like, who is from it and who is not. Mm. And to me, like, it just, 
you one doesn't have a choice to be born where you are or right. when you're young like your parents don't really um you know you don't have a choice of where your parents move but the good thing with my family is that they always have every week um every weekend i would be around argyle on the northwest side um i had piano there like my piano teacher was getting these uh, not far from argyle so oh, i do love that experience i didn't go to piano oh, yeah. lessons <laughs> piano lessons uh was it was a little abusive but it was uh it was fun <laughs> but um uh, sounds like, yeah but like sounds like, a, sounds like you have a joe jackson yeah. <laughs> uh, experience you know the michael jackson experience there the only difference is that i'm not a a famous pop star i guess but yeah, yeah similar experience but yeah i mean like yeah i grew up in glenna heights which actually if many people don't know in terms of like kind of through the i guess the urban planning realm or or, or perspective actually in terms of migration and settlement um, you know, like we think of port of entries, um, cities as being port of entries for a lot of immigrant and refugees, and that is still the case today. But suburbs and certain suburbs have become port of entries for immigrant and refugees as well, uh, even since like the early 90s. And yeah. these are, I and mean, we think about like suburbs as like affluent neighborhoods, and actually a lot of them aren't. Glendale Heights itself, the west suburbs where I live, it was actually not that affluent. Um, so yeah, I, I, I was lucky enough to live in a suburb that was actually quite diverse. If you look at um, the demographics, I actually looked at recently the demographics of like Vietnamese people specifically, mm. and Kwando hides itself based on um, the number of Vietnamese people to kind of the... Uh, I guess the geographic region of Glendale Heights and like the the space, it's actually one of the more dense areas of Vietnamese populations in Chicago, Chicago it land. Is. Yeah. So like I was, there was like, um, there's a community center out there. There was churches. There's things actually were happening out there. Uh, in addition to like other cultures and other immigrant and refugee groups. So like, I was like blessed enough to actually, although the suburbs are, I do agree kind of horrible, but, it wasn't like the white picket fence suburb that one would imagine. So yeah, that's where I grew up. Yeah, because I think about Glendale Heights too, because I grew up in Westmont, which is about 30 minutes away. Westmont is like a, is like 30, 45, well, it was 45 minutes away from the city uh, in the Western suburbs. And it was mostly a very white uh, neighborhood. I was like right by Downers Grove and Oak Brook, which were very affluent communities. But Westmont yeah. is a working class uh, white neighborhood that I grew up in uh, in the 80s. Like we're about the same age. Uh, yeah. Glendale Heights and Carroll Stream, part of Aurora, those are heavy in Southeast Asian community. There's a big Southeast Asian community, as you pointed yeah. out. Also, point forgotten too. People forget that. And I remember when uh, my mom told me uh, when her family came in, they didn't arrive in Chicago. They, the first place that they were living in was in Brookfield. Um, they were sponsored by the church. So they were also getting sponsored in in the Western suburbs. So it yeah. is interesting that we think of Port of Entry is also in the suburbs too. So it's also a really good point to uh, bring out. I remembered my first memories of Argo. It was very interesting how you bring this up because 
every week and my family and I would always go to Argao and I know we've talked about it in the past, but I used to dread going there every single weekend and I hated these long drives. This was before we had cell phones. This is before we had, um, well, Game Boy existed, but my parents would never let me own something like that. Uh, yeah, that was so it was very hard. Yeah, those were expensive back in the day. And so, yeah, we were just bored out of our minds, you know, every weekend. My brothers and I would get bored, but it wasn't until we reached um, into the bustling part of that, in that district that we, um, it would take my dad forever to find parking. So that was also really driving me up a wall. And we would go into these uh, supermarkets like Yigwao or Tainam. And I remember always wanting to grab the soybean drinks with the red bottle caps. Do you remember those? Yeah, I, I used to. I mean, I still love those. <laughs> I I haven't seen those in a while, unless I've been missing out lately. I mean, I've seen them in the bigger, in a bigger. Actually, game. you're right. Actually, I, I haven't seen I've them seen in a while them. either. I'm actually thinking about that now because I've been wondering what happened to those. Um, I've definitely. Um, those were like symbolic of my childhood years. And same with the Coco Ricos. Coco Ricos were my jam, and they still are. Um, yeah. And I also got into the Pennyworth drink, too. I mean, my none of, none of my family members like it except me. Uh, so, <laughs> like, I, I usually would take that drink because back in the day, I would have to share with my two brothers. They're twins. So yeah. I would always pick the Pennyworth drink because they would never drink it, and I would always have it. So, yeah. So you like, uh, intentionally acquired a taste for for that. <laughs> yes, I, I sure did. Do you, you don't care for Prettyworth? No, I I actually I do like it, but I rarely find myself buying it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was it was interesting to think about what those times were like compared to uh, what it is now. In, in the past 30 years, I remembered uh, Bale, uh, which is a Vietnamese uh, bun mi sandwich uh, shop. It was next to where the, the now Mac Room place is. And back in the day, it was a hole in the wall and it had this big old blue sign that says, it was, it would, I always read it as Bale, B A L E, instead of Bale, yeah. it, because there's no separation uh, yeah. between the pieces. It, uh, but I remember what it was like back then, and then where Tank Noodle was, which is a very popular um, corner, that used to be an older Vietnamese restaurant, which I didn't, which I completely forgot about until I saw old photos of what Argyle used to be. Um, yeah. There's been a number of old mom and pop shops in this community, in that community, and some of them have closed since then because uh, certain um, owners have aged and retired. Uh, some have moved off elsewhere and uh, there were also a lot of Cambodian, there were some, several Cambodian businesses too. There was a Cambodian music store like underneath the viaduct that my dad would go there each time to get his uh, latest cassettes and then see. I remember that. That uh, that store underneath the viaduct. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There was also like this um, this old um, grocery store too next to where Honky used to be. Honky just moved just another um, 
another building down. Um, I remember seeing these shops and there's old Vietnamese music storage, uh, Chung Ten, uh, is, I think that's what yeah. it's that's yeah, where it, First Sip is now. What happened? That's where First Sip Cafe is now. Yes, it is. It's, yeah. it's hard. It, it's sometimes when I walk down that street, I do get this wave of nostalgia. You know, I think about those Saturday, Sunday uh, times of the 90s where you would see yeah. these kids be bustling. And now the second generation of Vietnamese Americans uh, taking over and creating their own uh, vision of Argyle, which keeps part of the tradition, but it also incorporates the Americanized version of it too. Um, and then going to Glendale Heights, yeah, like when if we weren't going to Argyle, my parents and I would drive over to that direction, which yeah. to be honest with you, I thought it was just as boring as going to Chicago, if not <laughs> if not worse, to be quite honest with you. So, yeah, those long rides I do not miss so much, but I do get nostalgic for those uh, times. And I was wondering about your own experiences, you know, growing up in Argyle with these uh, neighborhoods, as as I was just talking about, and um, what were your feelings, you know, growing up, you know, seeing these um, seeing these mom and pop stores. Yeah, so my, my experience, I think, might have been a tad bit different because, like, every weekend we would have to go to piano practice first. So that's what I dreaded, actually. Like, oh, God, an hour, and then my sister had to take an hour. So I was there for two hours um, over off of, like, Peterson. Surprisingly, my piano teacher lived on Mozart, which is, like, very ironic. But that was what I dreaded, right? So, like, always after the piano practice, practices it was all it would always be like yo we're going to argyle and we're gonna eat and we're gonna shop and that actually was like you know like the cherry on top of whatever it is like on the you know it was like the icing on the cake it's like okay great now i get to go to the grocery store and i get to get that soybean drink yes. and i get to eat at these restaurants and also we would go eat with our family friends so it like to me it was like those moments of like thinking about space at that moment it wasn't you know I didn't you know conceptualize what this area meant to me but mm -hmm. like as I look back and as I reflect onto like what Argyle meant to me it was always like kind of how space is really important in terms of like bringing community together yeah. and either it's like one going to shop or like me after piano practice, like connected with my childhood friends at like Double Happiness or another like at a Vietnamese restaurant, or like just spending time with my parents at like a grocery store that's not like Jewel Osco or Dominic's, right? And that to me, like in reflection, it's it's like wow, this is like beautiful that there is a space like this where my parents could go, where I could also like connect. Um, but in those moments when I was younger, it was just like yes, like. I get to eat good food, I get to see my friends, and I get to drink soybean milk. Wow. Uh, but in retrospect, in in my mindset now, I think it's, that's why like Argyle as a space, as a corridor, is so vitally important to this day, right? Because there's a mm -hmm. child even today who is building memories about going to Argyle 
and maybe having and experiencing those same memories that I did as a childhood, mm-hmm. in my childhood, as, as you did. Um, they might seem as boring, but like they, I feel like down the road, they might feel that it is significant. And it, and it was like great in shaping their memories, good or bad, you know? So I think like yeah. in terms of like space and through the urban planning realm, like it's important to have these spaces for certain communities. Yeah, no, I think you bring up some very important points here. And thank you for sharing that uh, with us. My, um, when I think of this experience of Argyle, as a child, I really couldn't speak Vietnamese or Khmer. I mean, that was a struggle. And also, it didn't help that I was living in a very white-centered community. So I did not have the proximity, the proximity of relatives nearby. I didn't really have yeah. the ability to use my language or to meet with other Southeast Asian peers uh, growing up. But going into Argyle, it felt like this was my connection to the community. This was my best way of, my gateway of understanding of what my culture is about. And also it was important for my parents to go over there because it wasn't just the food that they needed to get, but it was the community. It was about the friends that they would connect with. It was the ability to speak that language in person. So it carries a lot of important weight on our families' uh, survival and their resilience being in this community for uh, a few decades now, right? So growing up, did you... um, were you able to speak Vietnamese? Were you, uh, how well, uh, how well were you with other Southeast Asian uh, peers growing up? Uh, I mean, so I spoke, uh, yeah, I actually spoke Vietnamese before I spoke English. Mm. Um, so like my parents, like, I think my mom, re- I, th- I think probably both of my parents actually really wanted us to have kind of, that foundation of the language. Um, I actually, yeah, so I spoke like, but I also spoke English. Both my parents uh, also speak English. So they taught us some stuff before we went to to school. But unfortunately, like once you enter the school system, like you don't utilize that language because like the environment is like everything is English. So like over the years, like up until like when I was like 18, like I didn't really want to speak Vietnamese I didn't really you know like I identified as like yo even though I had like even like growing my best friend in kindergarten was uh like two Vietnamese boys right Mm -hmm. like they're still like Facebook Instagram friends today you know um so there was like a lot of Vietnamese people then but like we never ourselves spoke Vietnamese together right so like the identity in terms of like even though I had um Southeast Asian friends, like Filipino friends, uh, like other Southeast Asian folks along with like other people too. Like, I don't think like I held on to that, the language I, as much as I could have, especially mm-hmm. like living in America. Like my, it wasn't until like when I was in college and getting ready to study abroad in Vietnam where I reconnected with the language and the culture. And a lot of stuff I did remember, but like, I, you know, like, I, I'm not extremely fluent, and I wish, and I think, like, a lot of people go through that, right? A lot of um, immigrant or refugee folks who are second-generation 
might hold on, might have that basis or foundation of the language, but are not extremely like professionally fluent in the language unless like you make an effort or if you're always surrounded by speaking it, you know? Um, so yeah, like I think like I did have a, a basis and I still have a functional level of like Vietnamese to work with Vietnamese businesses today mm. and like hold a conversation. But, um, you know, like I'm definitely not as fluent as someone from Vietnam or my parents. It's, it's a challenge, uh, to, uh, to find ways to use that language. Right. And then also having the space to learn it, uh, to be fluent. In it. I mean, unfortunately for me, that was something that I did not have many opportunities, uh, growing up, uh, yeah. In my previous episodes, I have talked about how um, my father wanted to push me to learn English and be very good at it, not to carry the accent, uh, to yeah. to accelerate um, myself and position our family to erase the pains of our past to lead towards a very prosperous future and it yeah. comes with a cost i mean it it like i did not have much of an interest in learning um, my parents native tongues um like by the time i was 18 even in my early 20s it wasn't until i went to vietnam for the first time uh back in 2009 as i'm in my mid-20s uh yeah. that i got to finally see the importance of my culture uh, i got to see the importance of of a sense, even though this is a very, it's very complicated for us second generation uh, Southeast Asian folks here. Um, but there's always been this void that we walk through that there's never a feeling, there's always this feeling of never feeling enough. Uh, we're not Vietnamese enough. We're not Cambodian enough. We're not Asian American enough. We're not American enough. It's there's a lot of not enoughs because we yeah. may not be able to speak the language well. We don't have the exact um, dialect or um, an understanding of our own history. There's all all these different factions that come into play here, and going to Vietnam it felt at least relieving in some cases, especially when I visit the hometown. Although when I visited Saigon, the, ca uh, the main city, uh, I remembered the taxi cab drivers, the restaurant workers were telling me, you need to learn how to speak that language. And I will tell you that it does hurt. It does reinforce my own anger and my own resistance yeah. to learn the language because no matter how hard I would try to speak or try to read, understand, I know that it would never be enough, and that is, a, and that's a hard, that's a hard experience to contend with, especially when you yeah. have to deal with it. And I remembered I wanted to teach English in Vietnam, but I ended up teaching in Korea instead. Yeah, and I would find out that they would actually, that there's a preference to hire Americanized or I would say white Americans to teach in Vietnam before they would consider teaching bringing in Vietnamese Americans. Oh, and I experienced that. It was hurtful. Uh, I, I, I experienced hurtful. that, yeah, firsthand. Because I did wow. briefly teach in Vietnam mm. at a school that, you know, like, a lot of the schools, like, you have to get a TEFL or TOEFL or whatever yes, it's called, yes. or ALTA or whatever yes. it's called. You know, yep. like, but there's also schools that you don't need that. And I didn't get one because my intention to 
moved to Vietnam was not to teach English, but I, you know, like that's kind of the easiest route to make money and like right. to survive in that environment. But like, it's not even an American, right? It's like, if your skin is white, yes. they'll hire you. I had a friend, she is from Sweden and she's half, I believe like, um, Syrian or Lebanese. I can't remember because it's been so long, right. but English was her fourth language. Mm. And we would hang out and she was getting paid quite significantly more than me when like basically my native tongue really is English. Yeah. But because you look like them, you don't know English, which is like unfortunate. And that speaks larger to kind of the global economic idea of like what, you know, white privilege and white supremacy might, you know, entail. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean that was devastating. I'm sure it was for you too. But I remember being so gut punched uh, yeah. when I heard about that. And I'm glad I didn't take that route to go to Vietnam to experience it firsthand. But that was something that I had done some research, and it was validated by other folks who were telling me what what was going on. Um, but but there comes a time where enough is enough right i mean you get tired of being told that you're never enough and like you know what no i i am enough i am more than enough on my best days what would you say when you've reached to the point where you're like okay you know what screw this i'm going to be who i am i am proud of my own heritage i'm proud of my own roots i this is how i've grown up how did you get to the point where you started to feel like this is who you are and accepting who you are? Yeah, I think that's an important question because that's like, like you said, like a lot of second generation, you know, not only Asian Americans, but like any immigrant or refugee second generation youth um, experiences and toils with. Uh, for me personally, like I, it's interesting because like I grew up like, not only hanging out with like other Asian Americans, right? Or like mm -hmm. Vietnamese Americans. And like, you know, like in terms of like growing up in youth and like teenagers as cliques, and there's always people even within your own culture saying, oh, you're whitewashed or you're yeah. this and that, or you're not Asian enough because you don't hang out within a clique. You know, so like yeah. not only like you do you internally like struggle with like what's going on in your mind and your identity crisis, but those other people surrounding you within the community are saying things and dictating and, you know, like basically in a way it's very hurtful, right? Like I've been told yes. that. And what's very interestingly enough, it's that what I realized what at a certain age, especially, I think like I realized after I came back from Vietnam in my mid twenties was like, you know, like actually, the, the people that when I reflected on it, certain people saying you're, you're whitewashed were people just because they hung out with people that looked like them. They didn't necessarily speak the language. They didn't necessarily, you know, embrace the culture in the, the manners that I intentionally try to seek out mm -hmm. in terms of like returning to, and also like, I think like a lot of people from Southeast Asia have struggles returning to what is considered their motherland because of trauma, because of war, of inherited trauma. 
Yeah. But like, if one does go there, I think there's an intentional idea of like forging your identity and learning about your identity rather than just because, oh, I'm an Asian American and I hang out with other Asian Americans. That doesn't make me more Asian or anything. Like, I think like to, to me, it's like you void out the noise. Like what I realized yeah. that I met great other Asian Americans, not only Vietnamese Americans, I've met like Cambodian Americans, like all these other like Korean Americans, like all these other people who lived in Vietnam, but also I've made so many local friends. So like, yeah. the idea of like identity and forging identity, I think for me, it's it's not a static thing. And like the noise of what people say and try to dictate what my identity is like, no, you don't know. And I'm not trying to dictate yours. So like, I've gotten to the point where like, you know, like my identity is Asian American, and that could be very different than another Asian American, because I don't think there's one Asian American identity. Um, so I think, like, I keep an open mind, and I try to not really take in the negativity of what people say, but, like, I'm confident enough to realize that I've forged my own path of trying to seek out this identity, and I'm happy what it is. I don't know how to, like, pinpoint what it is, but, you know, like, I... I'm an American. I am a child of refugees. I've lived in Vietnam and there's, I've lived in other countries and that has also forged my identity. Um, you know, so like there's identity is a, it's always moving and it's always changing, but also like, I think it is important to like reconnect with the roots and not let other people define it. Um, and it's a struggle sometimes when, with family and my parents because like you know yeah. it's like oh this is not like a very Vietnamese thing to do or like you know mm -hmm. so there is that struggle and that's ongoing um I think it's how you kind of work with it as you move forward yeah yeah I remembered uh when I was living in Korea uh back in from 2009 to 2012 prior to that I wasn't hanging around with a lot of Asian American folks because I think there was a lot of um frustrations that I was having internally that I've been told that I'm kind of whitewashed that I um that I've been living in a white neighborhood I don't feel like I know how to connect you you get to the point where you don't know who you are in a sense and, and not finding where your belonging is and I growing up it affected me a great deal and it wasn't until I went to Korea that I actually started being around other fellow Asian um uh, Western Asianers, uh, Western Asian folks uh, coming in to also teach, you know, whether they're from Australia, whether they're from England, from Canada, um, parts of the yeah. U.S. And it made me uh, realize for the first time I can actually connect with them, that I create, that there was this bond that I had with um, a lot of the Asian expats who were coming there to teach English. And that was very powerful for me. And And also, I think it was the first time that I realized how annoying white expats can be. So that was my first <laughs> turning point, shall I say. And coming back to Chicago, I felt more like reinvigorated to uh, reclaim my narrative and to, um, to, to have this continuing curiosity to learn more about my culture under my own terms, under my own agency, and, and finding the community that I deserve to be a part of. Um, yeah. So uh, getting back into Argyle 
or you know getting it back into your uh, with the work with the chamber of commerce you also have a master's in urban planning is that correct yeah so i actually came back from vietnam um back in 2011 to pursue like i worked for a bit at uh southeast asia center which is also has a long history in argyle and then right. after that i pursued um yeah, I completed a master's of urban planning and policy um, at UIC. Um, initially, I wanted to move back abroad because I did international planning, but a lot of what drew me back was actually working in Argyle um, and like reconnecting with Argyle and that community that really kind of shaped a lot of my research and shaped my master's project to eventually decide to stay. Um, so yeah, like I have a degree in that and like a lot of it, what kind of, you know, forged my research and my, yeah, my, my master's project was because of that space. Mm. Yeah. And now with this experience, uh, recently you've also been a part of a documentary from, from uh, WTTW Chicago uh, that's going to come out sometime in 2020. Uh, I was wondering if you could share us about that because I know that you get involved into the history um, of Argyle and uh, I was wondering if you would like to shed some light on that. Yeah, so um, it's a Jeffrey Bear uh, documentary. I think the overall documentary is about CTA owls. Uh, throughout the city, so they stop in different city, like different neighborhoods, based off all L stops. Um, so the first stop he made actually was Argyle Street, and they reached out to, you know, uh, the Uptown United and the Chamber, and they wanted someone to that had some knowledge of the area and also that was Asian American. So that's why they, I connected with them, um, and it was interesting because like through Argyle they went through the night market, um, which. If you don't know, uh, listeners, there's every year uh, from July through August, there's an Argyle night market, which is kind of based off of like Southeast Asian uh, street festivals or yes. street markets with like light, with food vendors. Um, so they try to replicate that and engage a lot of the businesses and community within Argyle, Asian Argyle to participate. Uh, so like my interview was focused on not only like talking about the history, well, it was like really talking about the history through the content of food. Um, so, you know, like talking about certain, we interviewed like three um, food vendors that have, you know, some history and longevity within the area, but also talking about how this community started. So Argyle itself, um, I guess, how far back do we want to go, I suppose? It was originally like a Jewish neighborhood and it's been it's had actually a lot of different layers of identities of Argyle, like Argyle's had many identities rather. Um, but I think if we want to talk about the identity of like Southeast Asian culture, originally the precursor was that there was a Tong war in Chinatown between two Tongs. Mm. Um, there's a whole history about Tongs and the Tong wars back in like you know the mid. 1900s and whatnot and prior to that that led to kind of the split between two tongs in chinatown which one tongue was forced to leave chinatown so they um went to argyle they identified argyle street in uptown as a place to create a new chinatown um and that was like probably the early 70s which mm. happened 
And like right as they were developing, there was originally like more Chinese, you know, like Chinese business there, but especially at the the end of the, you know, Vietnam or slash American war, whatever you want to call it, um, there was a lot of influx of refugees from Southeast Asia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, mm-hmm. you know, um, and also a lot of like ethnically Chinese people from those countries um, that found Argyle Street as a point of entry and they settled there. And since then, the late 1970s, a lot of organizations have uh, developed out of being there to help a lot of different immigrant and refugee communities through the waves, as well as, you know, local businesses that have that identity of Southeast Asia. Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of the, I guess, like the starting point of the identity of what Asia and Argyle is now. Um Originally, it was intended to be a new Chinatown, but it's very diverse in terms of the Asian identity, and I think that's what makes it beautiful, to be honest. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that to the surface here. Uh, but also, in for the past decade or so, we've also seen uh, a new wave of gentrification that's been taking over around Uptown. Um, and in that same period of time, a lot of the Vietnamese or Southeast Asian communities um, that were living there had started moving out into the suburbs, places like Glendale Heights, Carroll Stream, uh, Aurora, Lincolnwood. Yes, in those communities um, because they wanted to uh, have, they wanted to provide a better school system for the children. So living in the suburbs was that gateway uh, to this, um, this, this white picket fence life. So with that said, in the past 10 years with gentrification and with the uh, with the latest um, demographic, uh, well, I can't even, can't even verbalize it right at the moment, but, but having uh, families in the Southeast Asian community move out um, and start up different communities or just assimilating, what have you seen uh, that's been happening with Argyle, like in your own very eyes, especially since you've had a good uh, front row view of this. Yeah, like what you say about the families that have moved out, like, so the demographics of Uptown as a whole has significantly changed since the late, mid to late 1990s until present day. Um, Within, like, I think, like, every year they do the census and, like, you know, research the demographics of different neighborhood areas and community areas of all the way into, like, the block level. But, like, overall, Uptown has significantly become increasingly, increasingly more white, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, As of, I believe, like, the 2000 census, from my research, it said that around 70% of and maybe it's a little sooner i I don't take my word on it but like i have to go look back but like from my memory about 70 percent of uptown was uh basically people of color right there was a large black community there's a lot of hispanic community there was a large asian community there's also um native americans that live there and as of 2010 and 2012 the numbers have flipped it's 70 Mm percent um, white folk that now live there. And 30% is divided amongst 
folks of color. Mm. So yeah, like in terms of like gentrification, there's like many reasons for gentrification, right? Mm. Um, in terms of, I guess ultimately gentrification, right? Like in terms of like it, it, it does point back to zoning and like affluent white neighborhoods in the city and NIMBYs, which are like not in my backyard, people refusing to actually have certain developments and affordable affordable housing developments within that neighborhood. So therefore developers go and seek out neighborhoods where they can develop. Unfortunately, we live in a capitalist society where yeah. that is kind of just the status quo and the status quo is, it needs to be, it needs to, you know, people are fighting against it and that's necessary. And yeah. the problem is, yeah, there's, developments that have been happening in Uptown, a lot of SROs, which are single room occupancies, yeah. have been converted to market rate housing. Yeah. Um, a lot of poor folk who are at the really the bottom line, that's like the last threshold of being able to actually have housing. Their housing is being uh, basically converted into market rate condos and rental yeah. units. Um, yeah. We also had, oh yeah, yeah, oh, not to interrupt, but also there was, uh, there was a long time ago that uh, Mayor Rahm closed down that is now turning into a luxury condo over um, near the Wilson stop. And then uh, what, what else is, what else has been going on and what's going on with Bridgeview Bank, which also has so many nonprofit tenants that are now getting um, forced out. So yeah. There are so many. Yeah, I mean, like the it's called Swift School that was closed down during the Rahm administration. Uh, I believe a rental unit now goes for three thousand dollars a unit. Uh, I don't think there's any affordable housing um, units in that building, but like flats in Cedar Street, who has been like a huge gentrifier as a developer in the uptown neighborhood, they bought the Aon building, which is at fifty fifty North Broadway. They bought a synagogue. They bought the Lawrence House, I believe. Uh, yeah, and they also are the ones developing the Uptown Bridgeview Bank building, which houses like, if not hundreds of nonprofits that are targeted towards working with immigrant and refugees. And everyone is being basically booted out um, mm. from that building. But ultimately, too, in terms of like, if we talk about affordability, right, we have to talk about the affordable housing policy that exists in Chicago. It's based on AMI. AMI is average median income mm -hmm. of the the area, right? The whatever the average median income of that neighborhood is. When you have an influx, especially in the last 20 years of people moving in and the demographics shifting, it's not Appalachian white folk who were low, lower income people of the past white people that are moving in. It's more affluent people. It's more single people. It's more families. They have higher education. Also, a demographic that has shown is that people with college degrees that have moved into Uptown are white, higher ed degrees, and they have much more expensive income. Therefore, you know, so the AMI, the median income of the area is based on the demographic of people that live there. So the AMI basically is the average of the people that live in the area, and it's 60% generally for affordable housing, meaning that 60% of the average income is considered affordable for that unit. Mm. So generally what you see now in terms of like basically studio apartments, the AMI, which is considered affordable 
within the policy is like roughly eight to eight hundred to a thousand dollars for a studio. Mm. So now you're talking, and if you're talking about immigrant and refugee families and lower income folks, eight hundred to a thousand is not affordable. No, it's not. I mean, when I used to live in Rogers Park um, back in 2013, my um, large studio that I lived in was 715 a month. About by 2016, I believe, uh, my rent just shot up to like 860 um, yeah. in a very short amount of time. And Rogers Park, also another immigrant, uh, large immigrant community. Um, has also been impacted by gentrification and the storing uh, rising, the storing rates uh, for apartments, uh, for studios to two bedrooms. And um, I mean, if you're a single person, to even live in a one bedroom is almost impossible if you don't have um, a very good fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year um, income to live in yeah. those uh, communities, especially uh, in communities that were once very affordable. Yeah. Uh, so, and so and, with the work that you're to, doing, oh, God. Oh, no, just to like kind of uh, build on, upon what you said, like in terms of affordable, right? I, there are affordable units. There's affordable housing, like a lot of senior buildings that basically, you know, like I think at the corner of Argyle and Sheridan, there's, a, there's actually quite a few uh, affordable housing units for seniors. But yes. when we're talking about like affordable housing for families and multifamily units, there isn't much programming in terms of, um, you know, like in terms of like government programming to provide housing for immigrant families. It's either like you're a senior, there's an abundance of senior buildings, but there's also like, you know, single people, but like, with families that are struggling to to rent an affordable housing unit, the housing stock and like the affordable housing stock within Uptown, there isn't much of that. And I think like, and the, the waiting list of the ones that there are, the waiting lists are very, very long. Oh yeah, they usually about a couple of years. Yeah, yeah a couple of years. Yeah, yeah and, so like, yeah, yeah. When, yeah, when I was a caseworker at Southeast Asia Center, that's the struggle. A lot of families, um, who were looking for housing, there wasn't that option, right? It's like these, the wait list opens and it closes immediately. So like, that's an issue as well. Um, yeah. Of what, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you um, brought your insight into this. Also uh, with the Vietnamese Americans, there's people in our age group, the second generation folks that are coming in, creating businesses, in those areas that um, that uh, that that are replacing the old mom and pop uh, stores, do you also see them contributing to gentrification? I'm asking that question, but I, I'm I'm just very curious to know, especially when um, our communities came in here 40 plus years ago, and most of them were low income uh, and just working labor jobs. Their kids our generation, we've become in some ways better off. Um, for the most part, we have the education access. We've been able to uh, navigate the system for the most part. Not everyone has been able to navigate this complexity of the American system here. But, but, but in a sense, do you see 
I, I'm trying to think about this uh, for a moment because there is a sense that we're also contributing to that gentrification process, uh, even though um, those communities have been a part of our um, lives for a good long period of time. But I was wondering what your take is on that when you have these younger Vietnamese American, Thai, Cambodian, or um, Chinese American folks coming in to create businesses, but to modernize it to uh, to appeal to a different to appeal to their um, demographic, but also to appeal to a very uh, rich clientele in some cases. Yeah, um, this is something that I've always thought about, even like when I was. And this is something I still think about. Um, I don't think there's like a right or wrong answer, mm -hmm. but my thoughts are. And then this is a struggle, right? I think like the struggle is, um, well, first we have to identify is Asia and Argyle. I think we've already identified that it's the demographics of like Vietnamese people, some Vietnamese people still live there. Some Southeast Asian folks and Chinese folks still live in Argyle. But predominantly, if you look around the, the, the roads like Kenmore, Winthrop, all those places, like you've seen it, right? Like yes. where where the people that live there are not really of the people that you see in the nineties. Where like Argyle was just like people that lived there and they came to Argyle. Like that yeah. has shifted dramatically either because they've been priced out or because like certain families made it and they decided to, you know, they want a bigger house, a yard, whatever it is, they've left. So like the the fact of the matter is is that Asia and Argyle, aside from I would say, like, you know, a lot of, there's still a lot of seniors that live there. There's still some low-income folks that live there. And there's still, and there also is a mix of, like, you know, second-generation Asian-Americans that have either bought or rent in, in Asia and Argyle around there. But ultimately, like, looking at Asia and Argyle as a corridor, is it, one has to first identify, I believe, is it a commercial corridor simply now? Or is it, a community of people that live there like as a whole neighborhood. Yeah. And I think like that's whatever entry point one enters in the, in terms of this conversation. If you think that if one thinks that this is a commercial quarter in how to sustain the heritage and the identity of Asian owned businesses and about progressing and developing your business, then I don't see it an issue of, I mean, because if, so this is the hardest part, I think, like, because you see certain businesses kind of developing, right? Like, yes. Miss Saigon is, has changed the aesthetic. They've changed their menu. Um, and there's, like, other young businesses of second-generation descent that have come in and invested. And, of course, that it's going to bring in not the local Vietnamese community, but they also do bring in a lot of like second generation, you know, Asian Americans. So I, I, this is the hardest struggle for me in terms of thinking mm -hmm. about, do we create, you know, especially like second generation businesses and elevating the aesthetic, changing the menu, upping the price in a way it does, you lose the clientele of a lot of people who can't no longer afford it. Yeah. And then you're bringing in a different clientele. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But at the same time, I think, at the same time, like, they're, they are the children, like, First Sip is the children of Cafe Huang, right? There's, like, Miss Saigon and, like, all these restaurants, they're, they've been, their families have been here since, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, whatever wave they came, they called Argyle home. So, like, them, I think, like, the ultimate, I guess so, I don't know how to describe it, but, like, at least it is that carrying of the torch of that business and that identity. Um, But I don't know how to answer that question, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's a a complicated question. I mean, it's something that I've been thinking about, especially um, when we think about how do we preserve this community. Um, And I know uh, you've been talking a lot about gentrification, how and how uh, do communities try to resist this wave of gentrification and to preserve the communities to make sure that low-income families have an opportunity to stay and to raise their families, but and also to and also the businesses that have been here for decades. So I'm uh, also very um, I'm also wanting to get your take on how does how do you communicate to uh, community business leaders there and and what are their take is what are their take on what's going on with the gentrification issues going on in this community and how does it affect their business? Yeah, so I think there's like other things that have affected their business as well. Um, I think like if we're, to, if we're if we're talking about like the shift in demographic. Um, I mean, you see, like, restaurants like Tank and, like, certain other restaurants, like, you know, maybe in, there's, like, the clientele is not predominantly Thai or Vietnamese, right? Yeah. For that specific business owner, that's good, right? Because their yeah. money, unfortunately, we live in a world where money is money. They're making money. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, in terms of, like, outside of the demographic shift, I think that there's also, like, other infrastructure issues that have impacted their business, right? Like, so recently, I think like a year or two years ago, like the streetscape of Argyle, you know, finished, mm-hmm. that impacted their business greatly um, because the street closed. And we have to think about how people and what type of demographics that people get to Argyle in certain ways. Yeah. So like, you know, like maybe, and I know that, you know, you know, like a lot of Asian people drive cars. Yes. So there's no parking, right? Yes. So there's like the, the streets shut down. They're not, they're not gonna go there. Yeah. When the street is shut down for like three years, and those cli- like those clients are not gonna go. They or the, you know they may they may still go there, but like they're less prone to go there because there's not parking. Right. Um, so like a lot of the businesses after the streetscape project actually were hurt significantly. I talked to a lot of business owners and they said like, yo, like about like we're not even like back to where we were before the streetscape. Yeah. And then what unfortunately and maybe for unfortunately for the businesses, um, there's a red line modernization project, which yeah. is basically gonna start the end of next year. It's mm-hmm. gonna close Argyle and Berwyn completely until twenty twenty five. But there's gonna be a um a temporary station open at Winona. But, okay, so 
but then you have to also think about like how do you when you have such a large infrastructure project like there's going to be street closures throughout the five years yeah. so not only did they experience like last three years of the streetscape project which was like in a way okay great like you know it's like increasing like you know mobility and like you know walkability for folk but it ultimately really at the end of the day hurts the businesses and mm -hmm. i've talked to quite many businesses and they're like have given me very fatalistic answers it's like all right well if it's coming then i'll shut down shop mm -hmm. um there isn't really much hope for mm -hmm. quite a few businesses in the area because they that that kind of like what an area gentrifies is not simply just like the shift in lack of affordable housing, the shift in demographics, but there's like also more investment in terms of what the city believes is like, now they're developing it. Why didn't they do it like 30 years ago? Yeah. Because there's big shifts. There's, it's, it's, it's like layered consequences yeah. of like what's happening. And ultimately this red line modernization project is gonna really hurt Argyle. Um, so in a way it's like, you're at a juncture, how do you then as a business market and sustain and if your clientele is shifting aren't you forced to modernize and change to survive mm. so i don't know the the answer like yeah like ultimately yeah i mean there's there's a lot of issues that you know have led to this mm. it's it's quite compelling and um, again, it's it's very depressing. It's a sobering reality that um, these communities, including um, Asian Argo, are dealing with at the moment, and what that's going to look like ten years down the road. What does what is it going to look like? Uh, most recently, about like well, this whole this past year, you you and Jennifer have uh, teamed up to create the event Habayo. And Habayo is a Southeast Asian late night party. Um, I think that's done once a month on a Saturday night. Um, one of the interesting things is before I ask you what Habayo is, um, Uptown is not known for its nightlife unless you have the Aragon and, and uh, the Riviera for a concert. But in Asian Argyle, there's no nightlife. It's, it's, it's it's a play, it's it's a community that runs during the daytime it's um there's no nightclub scene there's no uh bars around that area so i was very curious to know how did that concept get started and i remember going to the first habayo event um back i think it was early spring and i remembered um being quite amazed in, in a sense because it had the secret uh hideout it's a hangout and i felt like i was kind of like in a different world being there i felt like i was living in la again just this is <laughs> this it, it felt kind of exclusive it felt like our own little party i thought the drinks were incredible i'm not a big drinker but I, that lychee um cha-cha-cha drink is amazing i could not get enough of that uh if any of you go to habayo events that is the first thing that i will recommend um, shout out to nookie because she uh nookie, is a great jennifer, yeah jennifer aka nookie that she it is amazing those drink those craft drinks those um those cocktails that um she makes 
it, it's stellar. I, yeah, I, I don't like to promote alcoholism, you know, or any of that evil stuff. But I love it. <laughs> I, I can't help it. It, it. It's wonderful. But it was a really, it's it's quite a night because you because it was the first time being in that kind of API centered space, and it's a big dance party. I mean, you see. Um, different performers out there you have djs it's it felt quite it was quite an experience and i've connected with quite a, a few people do that experience so i was wondering if you could tell us what habayo is about i know i kind of shared uh, a little bit of a, a little bit about it there but i just want to know uh, how it got started and what does it mean yeah so um jennifer and i have previously like you know collaborated on different projects in the past and I think we came together uh, with the intention, well, first and foremost, like with the identification that, like you said, like Argyle is a daytime space. It's a lot of businesses that close at 10, um, restaurants that close at 10, and there isn't much of a nightlife scene. Um, but I think like both her and I felt that like there were so many second generation you like not we're not youth anymore i guess we're like in our mid-30s now yes exactly. but um but like that have lit have lived experiences or have gone and have memories of argyle and have disconnected from the area right um mm-hmm. either they might stop by for a meal but like there are certain people that still hold a lot of memory and nostalgia for the area and it shouldn't, and we felt like it shouldn't just be nostalgia, but how do we kind of activate the corridor in a way that brings people back um, that have previously, you know, gone there as children or like, you know, that don't have any intention to go there at night because there's nothing going on, but how do we create something that draws folk back? Um, that was like kind of the one thing I believe, but also another aspect I believe is, especially like I hung out a lot in the last few years at First Sip, right? Like they yeah. opened shop and there was always, and there's a ton of people that I've met that I've never known in the past mm-hmm. um, within like the larger uh, Asian, you know, Asian American Pacific Islander community, as well as like other groups of people that were doing really creative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um like like and they're always looking for space so i think like that was like another intention like to connect and collaborate with people who are doing stuff within this identity in this culture in this group that are going to other spaces they're going to different neighborhoods but how do we centralize it and have this kind of community hub to kind of highlight and cross-collaborate and cross-promote each other. Mm. Um, so how about you know, itself, what it means is the latter word of what cheers is in Vietnamese. Yeah. In Vietnamese, generally, when you kind of have this idea of drinking and eating, which in, like, I guess, like, in the American um, nightlife scene, they don't do that. You go to dinner, and then you go drink. But in, like, most Asian cultures and in most other cultures in the world, like, those two things happen simultaneously. Yeah. So, like, Haibayo itself is, like, 
what you say when you do and you act or you engage in this like idea of eating and drinking and sharing together. Right? It's like moat hi by yo, hi by yo, hi by yo. So the idea came from like that latter part of hi by yo, but also yeah, like our intention was not just to have a party and I think we've grown since our first one. Um, we've included quite many vendors, um, not only Asian American, but also like a larger POC, also LGBT folk, a lot of like highlighting artists, vendors, and connecting with each other and providing a platform for us to just have kind of a safe space to enjoy. Um, and I think Habayo has done that and i and we get a lot of feedback from people who who have mentioned that to us and that's it feels to be honest it feels like i feel like honored to have the opportunity to work with like all these people and like collaborate with all these people and also mm -hmm. to provide that space for you know people who are within our generation that maybe previously wouldn't have reconnected with argyle yeah um, yeah yeah, I'm so glad that you brought this space up because it also helps um, the businesses too around because you have, because Habio starts like around nine o'clock-ish, if I recall, and you have people going in for dinner like right before uh, they enter the event. So, I mean, and that in itself also contributes to the business and it also gives younger folks, um, people of our age and younger reasons to go in there. Um, yeah. to enjoy to be themselves to to uh exist without you know having it be so heavily tied to their parents like oh yeah i have to go to argyle with my parents but in this case i'm going in there with my buddies you know on a saturday night it's a different yeah. vibe that um you're defining i know i know that um the only drawback for habayo is that i'm such an old person the way i am these days like i complain if i have to like stay past 10 p.m these days i don't know i don't know how I you and nookie do it because i cannot stay that late for the life of me i mean i'll go to a concert and by the time i leave you know i get very grouchy if i have to like if it ends like by 11 o'clock i'm i'm turning into this you know get off my lawn status kind of man that i am right now and i don't know how you and nookie keep up with that because i could barely catch up i think i've only done like this i've only done like three habayo events and i've left like right before midnight no <laughs> I, I, totally how agree with you. Boring I am these days because actually like it's it's interesting that you say that because like normally i'm not like in my like social life i'm not like much of a partier yeah right? like i i, I enjoy like going to a film screening maybe listen to some jazz music, having a bar at my local bar and the night at midnight. But I think like to organize it, it's, um, for me, it's different. Um, and I, I, I try not to drink as much. So that's why I can stay to like, you know, a little later. Um, but I think it's, I think, yeah. The thing though, as of right now in our curtain formation of what it is, and what we intend to do in the next year will become, I think like our, our goal is actually to be able to secure space on Argyle to kind of have a multifunctional mm. event art space. Um, yeah. So it would be like an event space that could host late night events with, you know, possibly a bar, but also to be able to connect with like recently, actually we connected with subtitle 
which is the South, mm-hmm. the first Southeast Asian, um, or not the first, but it was like one of the Southeast Asian uh, American film festival shorts, and wow. that had like a lot of features from filmmakers from Southeast Asia as well as like Asian Americans showcase their work for the first time anywhere. So we had that like actually like two weeks ago um, at the space. So like you know like eventually the our aim and our trajectory to create like a hub and a cultural creative hub of like different types of programming, spoken word, you know, like film festival, food pop-ups. So it wouldn't be just like, you know, a nightlife thing, but we would want to add more value to the area in like different kind of different ways, I suppose. Yeah, that's wonderful. And and I'm glad that um, Habayo is becoming successful, that it's attracting a very good API crowd and also with other POC folks and, and the fact that they're investing their Saturday night to make it a positive experience. It's uh, kudos to both of you for really working hard on this. Uh, also, Hawk, I remembered, yeah, I also, Hawk, I also remembered you were going into food entrepreneurship too. You've also started to get your hands into that, uh, into that other project that you've been working on. So I was wondering if you would like to share a little bit about that. Yeah. So like, I've always kind of have, um, I guess, like, everyone <clears throat> loves food, right? I mean, like, I don't know many yes. people that don't. But um, I've been lucky enough to have... <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, so in terms of, like, my food, um, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, like, a lot of... Everyone will assume I've been blessed that my parents were former restauranteurs. So, like, I grew up eating great food. But, like, in terms of my endeavors with food, like, I've, because of that, like, I've engaged in a lot of different pop-ups um, throughout the years. Like, I've been sous chef, I've, you know, co-led, like, a whole pop-up at the local bar near my my apartment in Albany Park. So I've engaged, in, and I've also, like, helped organize the Thai Food Festival for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of, like, the idea of food has always been kind of embedded in me in terms of, like, seeking out different projects. But um, I believe that, like, the food project that I want to do actually was actually based off of my time working with Southeast at Southeast Asia Center when I worked with a lot of different clients from all over the globe. And in terms of, like, you know, like, my work is to help them apply for food stamps, housing, um, medical cards, and things like that. And then in terms of, like, gratitude, they always would come, like, a lot of clients would come and bring me food from their culture. Mm-hmm. And I was so thankful for that. You know, it was like, plus, like, I love food, number one. But it's just like, you didn't have to do this because, but, like, I appreciated it. And I, the food was fantastic. Um, and through that, like, think, and simultaneously at that same time, I was actually, you know, conducting my master's project and thinking about Uptown and Argyle, um, not only Argyle, but Uptown and, like, immigrant and refugee chefs. I mean, I know, like, a lot of, programs and projects uh, working with immigrant and refugee chefs in terms of like entrepreneurship mm-hmm. um, have occurred in different cities but like you don't really I haven't seen one in Chicago so like my my aim was like you know how do I connect um, with certain immigrant and refugee families who have such a great skill set and if they do want and they have that desire to become a food entrepreneur how do I create a platform for them to do such? So I think like moving forward, like one of my projects is actually to actually kind of take some 
aspects of my master's thesis and like implement it in terms of connecting to, um, I think like the first step is probably connecting to the refugee farm on Lawrence. Uh, mm. There's a lot of Burmese and like a lot of um, Nepali folk. And I know some people who are on the board, so I'm trying to connect with them and thinking about like really strategically about how to, to create like a real program, a real nonprofit to um, work with immigrant and refu- refugee home cooks who have a desire to become a food entrepreneur. So like that's kind of uh, moving forward in 2020. I think that's something that I want to pursue. Um, in addition to that, like that aspect would be, you know, not only providing that pl- platform, but also like curating multimedia um, output in terms of like storytelling in terms of, you know, yeah. photography, food ethnography and whatnot um, to work with, like, and to storytell about these folk and mm. to raise awareness, I suppose. And not only that, but also, like, to, yeah, I mean, that create. That would be wonderful. Yeah. yeah, that would be, that would be excellent if if that will come into fruition. So um, good luck with all of, good luck with that um, endeavor here. So, Thank you. When we talk about Argyle, I know that we've touched on some very, you know, challenging realities of that neighborhood. But down the road, um, looking into Crystal Ball and our best optimistic um, self here, um, what do you what do you hope for with Argyle in the next five to ten years? What do you see? Hope. What do you hope to see will emerge? Um, I hope that there's still a Southeast Asian identity of Argyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but more specifically, I hope that there could be active approaches in terms of redeveloping certain plots of land that's owned by organizations that are Southeast Asian to create affordable housing and leveraging uh, funding from affording affordable housing developers to create affordable housing for not only seniors, but also families and immigrant and refugees. Specifically, I believe that Vietnamese Association of Illinois owns the uh, parking lot behind next to Hong Kee. Mm-hmm. Um, Southeast Asia Center owns that huge parking lot next to um, right at the corner of Ainsley and Broadway. Mm-hmm. So how do we, how does like one work with these organizations in terms of like strategically thinking about redeveloping the land and leveraging affordable housing funding and like tax credits to build this, if that's mm-hmm. feasible. Um, mm-hmm. Two is connecting with, um, you know, business leaders, um, organizational leaders, nonprofit organizational leaders, and different types of uh, agents of change within the community to create a specific organization, maybe like a community development corporation to kind of focus on the identity of Argyle in terms of development, what happens in terms of leveraging funds from the city to help businesses, someone to stand up and have a voice and have a seat at the table for this specific community. Um, And I think like through that, that conversation of like, you know, having affordable housing and building affordable housing units may come to fruition um yeah i i think there's like roads and pathways 
to be able to sustain the identity. Um, I know that there's a lot of, in terms of when we talk about gentrification, a lot of people, there's always like this kind of sense of fatalism that, oh, it's happening and it's done and it's erased. But I think like if there's people in the community that could come together and create some sort of, you know, CDC, which is a community development corporation, think strategically about how to add affordable housing to the area for POC, immigrant, refugee, lower income folk, and also strategically thinking about leveraging business funds to invest in the businesses that are existent and new businesses that are, mm-hmm. you know, with that identity, I think that the future could, um, you know, the identity and the heritage could sustain. Yeah. And thank you so much for sharing all of your experiences and the history of Argyle and, and the work that you've been doing. So before we conclude, I actually want to uh, ask you, uh, where can we find you? Where can we find more information about Habayo? Uh, any plugs? Yeah, you can follow us on Instagram. It's H-A-I underscore B-A-Y-O. Um, yeah, so Instagram. We also have HiBayo.com, our website. So, yeah, follow us on that. In terms of me, I don't really have a website or anything, but um, you can see me quiet in the corner, sipping on a beer or having a cigarette <laughs> at HiBayo. Oh yeah, it would, yeah, you, yeah. That's that's how. Yeah, you you left an impression on me like pretty quickly. You know, I was like, okay, it's it's always the quiet ones that uh, draw that that um that I get drawn to. Um, and I'm like, oh, there's a reason for that. So, uh, I want to say thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much knowledge, uh, wisdom, and really just for doing all the important work that you're doing uh, to preserve uptown, but also to uh, record the history uh, for our younger generations, because it is very important to uh, remember our uh, parents' legacies and our legacies that we're writing as we speak. So that it's, it's amazing what you're doing. It's amazing what uh, you and Nokia have been doing. Um, for the past year and longer so i wish you so much um success and the best of luck in what you're doing for this community and and working with these uh important businesses but yeah thank you so much for your time Hawk. it's been such a pleasure and and i hope that people come out to habayo um once every saturday so follow them on instagram and uh, keep up to date because uh, it's a party you will not want to miss also, I wanted to say thank you for the opportunity and also thank you for, um, you know, even creating, like, to do this podcast. I think, like, in terms of documentation and storytelling and oral histories and what you're doing is critically important um, as much as everyone that you're interviewing. So, like, yeah, I, I thank you so much for, I guess I'm, like, really appreciative in terms of, like, getting to know you and also, like, you know, co-collaborating in terms of the work that we're doing. I think, like, all of this, ultimately we will lead to kind of you know sustaining that heritage so i thank you for the opportunity to share my story but simultaneously i have i'm like really happy that you know you're 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 interviewing people and sharing their stories and creating that platform for that voice to be heard so i appreciate all that you do as well
Oh, thank you so much, man. Thank you so much, my friend. And until next time, uh, we'll be signing off. But thank you so much, Hawk. Have a great uh, rest of your week. Thank you. Peace. Good night. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you. Thank you.